Coming to you from the City of Angels, this is The Daily Saint, and here's your host, Michaela Conley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Daily Saint podcast. Today, I'm talking with Andrew Green, a foreign correspondent currently based in Berlin after spending five years living and working in sub-Saharan Africa. His work, which has appeared in The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and others, focuses on health, human rights, and politics. He's particularly interested in systems that perpetuate inequality and the people who seek to disrupt them. Today, I'm talking to Andrew about his feature that's out today in the Los Angeles Review of Books, in which he profiles Stella Nianzi, a Ugandan medical anthropologist and scholar who was recently imprisoned for 16 months after she wrote and published a graphic poem about the mother of Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. Andrew traveled to Uganda in January to interview Nianzi, and at the time, she was still serving her prison sentence. So you have an excellent piece out today in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Can you tell me and us a little bit about it? I mean, I read it a few times now, but for people listening who might not have seen it yet. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I traveled to Uganda in January um, to visit this woman who is a medical anthropologist by training, but um, was jailed because of her political speech against the president, um, she was given an 18-month sentence for um, a poem that she wrote that essentially was saying that she wished that the president's mother had had a miscarriage instead of giving birth to him. Um, but what I was trying to understand – so I, I, had, I had lived and worked in Uganda before and was familiar with um, – with this researcher whose name is Stella Nianzi. Um, she's been, you know, quite outspoken. She does really great research and um, medical anthropology into the LGBT community, both in Uganda and then also in other places in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, just, just an incredible academic and incredible thinker. But um, it struck me as unusual that, um, that a medical anthropologist, uh, a single mother of three, you know, someone that is usually not targeted by, the Ugandan political regime, um, and certainly not someone who's, you know, kind of put on trial and thrown in jail for 18 months would, would kind of get these consequences. And I was mm -hmm. curious to know what it was about her, um, what she was doing that had so rattled the administration that they had taken, you know, what, what seemed like fairly extraordinary steps. So that was kind of the genesis of the piece was, um, was trying to go to Uganda and find out what it was about Stella Nianzi that scared the Ugandan administration so much. Mm -hmm. And so what is it, do you think about, I mean, she could, I mean, obviously from your, when people read the piece, they'll, they'll see how much she can really, um, I guess, gather the masses <laughs> and mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. engaging in both for what she's saying and also, you know, having people really fight with, argue with her against it. But, um, what, what do you think it is about her that can really, that really rattled them? Yeah. So I think so I was, I sh it's several things, I think. So I, one is exactly what you're saying, where it's like she figured out how to harness social media in a way and, and harness people's kind of prurient interests and like love of gossip and love of kind of like um, being shocked. And so she would she would mm -hmm. write these like really extraordinary things, just like really harsh, really kind of I mean, always tongue in cheek, but like also playful, but like 
often deeply sexual um, things on Facebook about the president and the first family. Um, and then she would, so then it would start these conversations, especially in a, in a context like Uganda, where there's this expectation that a woman would not say something like this. And that, um, mm-hmm. and also, you know, it's that the context is deeply religious, um, both Christian and Muslim. And so, you know, the, these kinds of things are not really kind of spoken about publicly. And so she's, she took this attitude, like, let all that be damned. And then, you know, people were flocking to her page to like engage with her and talk to her. And then she used that to both to highlight kind of the failings of the administration and point people at, at, you know, the ways that they're consistently being lied to and taken advantage of and, and kept in poverty and kept, you know, without health access to health services and, and all these kinds of promises that are being neglected by the government. But then also just kind of like turning the situation on its head and saying, like, you know, you guys are trying to shame me for, like, you know, the use of language or for, like, ex- expressing myself however I want to. But, like, the real shame is, like, you know, that you have this cadre of leaders who have just consistently failed you. Um mm. And, and that's, you know, that's a much deeper shame. That's where you should be focusing. And so I think that, that kind of rattled the administration because, you know, she starts, people start to think like she's, her goal is to raise political consciousness and people are kind of aware of this, but when you've lived under a regime for more than uh, three decades, like, I don't know, I'm sure that in some ways that's, that's kind of numbing. Um, And she was saying to people, like, don't be numbed by the situation. Um, you know, you have the right to be outraged by this. You shouldn't be outraged right. by what I'm saying. And just for background, if people don't know um, much about Ugandan government and politics, President Museveni has been, um, how long has he reigned? 25 years? 30? It's more than 30 now, yeah. Um, okay. it, I think it was the 34th uh, anniversary on, in January. And do you feel like... Um, when when she's saying these things, when she's when she's like, okay, yeah, I think that my language is inappropriate, but look at what we're tolerating. Do you feel like that she did open up a lot of thinking for people who might not have realized really or have been so numbed by this? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely that element because I mean, just consistently talking is astonishing being there. And I, I, you know, I didn't include any of this in this, this story because I don't want to be one of those journalists who just talks to, to taxi drivers and records their um, thoughts. But, you know, I did talk to a lot of taxi drivers about her. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was, and it was all over the country, right? Because I was just not, I was not just in the capital Kampala, but I also went to the North and was asking people there if they were familiar with her, or if she's just kind of like this Kampala based phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, everyone is like, she's definitely like, people are aware of her. She is a sensation. People know who she is. People know what she's saying. Like she's, she's a force of nature within Ugandan society and and not just across Uganda, but really across much of um, sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, there are these groups that are organized around um, Stella Nyanzi in places like Nigeria and Kenya. Um, So I think there's that sense where like, you know, just repeatedly hearing from people, like she says the things that everyone's thinking. She says the things that everyone's thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, but then it's like, so I think the other thing, the other way, and I think this is what I tried to highlight in my piece is also that she did the work of raising consciousness through her speech, but then she also did the actions. So she organized a women's march um, to protest the government's failure to investigate the the murderers and um, like really atrocious of more than of several dozen women um, in Uganda in 2017, 2018 um, that were just kind of going uninvestigated. 
she organized a campaign to get menstrual pads for girls so that they could stay in school after the president made a campaign promise to do that and then backed away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, you know, so there's this sense of like, you know, the government's not doing what it says it's supposed to do. And instead, like, it falls on me. I'm, you know, I'm just a medical anthropologist. I'm just a single mother of three. And like, she uses this kind of rhetoric, right? Rhetorical trick a lot. Um, and she's saying, so now I'm, I'm stepping up to fill the gaps. Like this isn't the way things are, things should be. Um, so like kind of the, turning the shame again on the administration, like, mm-hmm. you know, you kept us poor, you've kept us, um, you, you know, you're keeping girls home from school by not letting them have menstrual pads, all these, you're, you're doing all these things to keep us in these terrible conditions. And yet we still are expected to step up and like fill these gaps that you won't do. So like, this is just, you're putting just this, incredible burden on us that, you know, of course people are suffering and of course people are dying. But do you feel like that she did have an impact on people in power or is that too much hopeful thinking? Well, I I don't, I don't, I mean, I think the, the administration responded by locking down. So like, you know, they've been in power for so long that they, and they see her as another threat. I mean, interesting that they see her as a threat, right? Like she's unlike any kind of threat they faced before. Um, And interesting that they would put her on trial twice um, under this like really ridiculous law that kind of tries to prohibit speech on the internet, which is what they accused her of, you know, violating. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they threw her in prison for, she ended up serving 16 months of an 18 month sentence. Um, and was released in February. But, um, I, so, I mean, I think they were like, they definitely see her as a threat and they're definitely rattled. I think that what's interesting is that like, she has not, so she's obviously like, um, engaging with the political opposition, but she hasn't committed to any specific opposition figure or opposition party. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's really indicative is like, you know, people, the, the opposition is really definitely courting her. They see her as a vital, voice in the anti-administration rhetoric and action. And so it's kind of like trying to recruit her to their side. People definitely see her. They recognize her as, as a threat to the administration as a, is like a potent voice of potential change. But, um, but no, I mean, I don't think she, she <laughs> is going to cause any changes within the administration. Unfortunately, right, right. <laughs> um, You mentioned in your piece, at the beginning about radical rudeness and how that's a pretty, a, a term used um, for this type of rhetoric. Can you talk a little bit about it? Cause I think it's pretty great. Yeah. So I, so, uh, this really great, uh, historian at, she's based at the university of Richmond now wrote this piece, um, in um, several years ago, um, her name is Carol Summers about the idea of radical rudeness in Ugandan, um, in the colonial era in Uganda when it was still under British control. Um, and it was this, and so I drew on that. Um, and then, I, I and saying that, like, don't want to say that it took a Western academic to identify this. And I don't think she would either. Obviously, like, mm. the Ugandans themselves were aware of this well before <laughs> the, right. the rest of us got there. But um, uh, anyway, so but as a primer on, or kind of background on the, on the idea, it was quite mm-hmm. useful. Um, but the idea is that so the British government, so the Ugandan, the much of Ugandan culture is built around kind of the traditions of um being very polite, being, you know, social hierarchy and, um, and age hierarchies and, and gender hierarchies for sure. I mean, this is a culture, some Ugandan cultures where, and and this is includes the one that Stella Nyanzi is from, um, Luganda culture where women are still expected to, um, kneel when they approach a man. 
um, before they start speaking. So, you know, there's, there's, there's all these kind of systems in place to like check privilege to check, not, not privilege, but to check um, like people's status to, to make Mm -hmm. sure that no one's, you know, kind of advancing too quickly or getting above themselves. Um, And so the British of course also kind of have these systems and really took advantage of the, the culture in, in the traditional societies in parts of Uganda to, to, to also kind of keep, the colonial system in place. So to, to maintain a hierarchy, to, um, you know, to keep people deferential and, and, um, and just, you know, in their place, quote unquote. Um, and so there was a group of these really incredible activists, um, in the, like toward the end of the colonial era who started just being, you know, it's, it's like just writing the really awful, atrocious things, like, you know, making all these kinds of like radical comments, um, being just like refusing dinner invitations, but like in this like really, really like public and rude way um, and just like refusing to engage with the British on the terms that the British wanted to engage with them on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became this kind of rallying point for, you know, efforts to over, like to, to, I think again, to like raise consciousness about the, 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 the status quo and like what was wrong with, um, living, like being forced to live in a colonial society. Um, but then also to like push for, um, kind of autonomy and, and like the overthrow of that regime. And so mm-hmm. she's definitely like, uh, an heir to that, that. Right. Movement. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about her as an activist, and you've done a lot in reporting about human rights and activism. Do you feel like, how should I ask this? So I feel like a lot of times, kind of what you've touched on already, activists aren't necessarily the people you'd expect them to be. Sometimes they're Mm. kind of unexpected figures that kind of come out and kind of just can't tolerate whatever it is everyone's tolerating. Is there some sort of characteristic or value that you kind of see in people who become these grassroots activists? It's a good question. I mean, I've, I've been, I mean, the thing that immediately springs to mind and like the thing that everyone, when you talk to them about Stella Nianzi will say is that she's just fearless. And I think about that too, in the context of places where I've worked like South Sudan, um, like in the midst of uh, the civil war or Burundi during the kind of recent crackdown on the political opposition. And like the, you just think about like the, the people who are willing to kind of like stick their head above the parapet and like speak out like in those situations just have to be like above everything else, just like have an incredible amount of courage. Um, and and so- true. I mean, with her too, I've been thinking about her because as you write in your piece, I mean, she's a single mother of three and she says, if I have to give up parts of, mothering my children at the moment, then I'll do that in order for them to speak truth to power. And I, yeah. I don't know, as, as a mother myself, I just find it incredible that I like so much courage, so much sacrifice you'd have to make to make that decision. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that I was, so there's this way that she's held up as this figure, you know, like she's, you know, people, people think about, she's incredible, right? Like she's this woman who just like, will in, in court, like will interrupt and go on these like extensive rants and like, doesn't like she refused to accept bail. She went to prison because she wanted to highlight just the atrocities and like the, 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 the horrible situation 
that the administration was putting Ugandan people in. Um, like she made all these, like she did all these things and people look up to her and they're like, oh, she's just this incredible figure, right? Like there's this reverence and awe. But like there's also this real sacrifice that, you know, you kind of kind of gets lost in like the mythology almost where it's like she mm-hmm. does have three young children and she is their primary caregiver. And like they, she, you know, they can come and visit her in prison, but like she doesn't have like continuous access to them. Like she gets to see them, you know, however many times a week. Like she, she still does have to live in this prison environment, which is, you know, I think it was 70 something women in one block, like where, you know, two, two women to a mattress that they sleep on the floor. Everyone's got lice all the time. She's constantly getting uh, urinary tract infections because everything's just so dirty. Um, And I think that was, that to me was like, I was, (laughs) how to say this as a journalist, I was glad that I had the chance to meet her when she was still in prison and could, she was like kind of in, she, she was, it was possible to see like the sac- the real sacrifice that she was mm-hmm. making, like that, that she would like, this is, this is what she was putting up with. And also this is what she was giving up and it, which I think kind of gets, uh, could potentially be overlooked like in the victory parade that followed her right, release exactly. from prison. Yeah. yeah. Cause the photo, I mean, it's like the photo and video sees her coming out or in the days later and kind of back to her, um, mm-hmm. you know, topics at hand, <laughs> but yeah. what she had to put up with in the meantime is pretty remarkable. Um, back to the radical rudeness though. Do you feel like, so I'm kind of transferring gears a little bit toward like U S politics and journalism. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like that type of idea of radical rudeness, while in Uganda, like you said, it was rooted in the colonialism? I mean, obviously, the United States has a long history of that. But um, (laughs) do you feel like we have that in in a way with, in journalism, in politics, this type of, I don't know, trolling? Or do you feel like that's a different type of uh, approach? that we kind of see in this typical like trollish or whatever way of bringing quote unquote yeah. truth power or just it's such an interesting it's something I wrestled with so much in thinking about this story because like so I I I, I tried to speak to several people who have studied radical rudeness and had not to like put anyone's name out there because they chose not to talk to me but like they like several people wrote back and were like you know I'm not condemning or, you know, making any kind of value. But like, I've come to rethink the value of rudeness in the current Mm -hmm. climate. You know, I think they're drawing, not drawing parallels, but they're, you know, there's like, obviously Donald Trump is like the master of rudeness. Like he is just an incredibly abhorrent, rude person. Um, You know, he, he, he plays with that. And like, that's, and it's, you know, then you start to think like, well, what's the difference between what, Stella Nianzi is doing and what he's doing. And I mean, their chief course is, is going up. And so I think that's the difference and he's hitting down, but, um, right. but you know, still it's like, you know, the, there was this kind of open question that people were asking. It's like, do I want to be in a position? Um, it mean, certainly does like that yeah. language. Once that's amplified, as we know, <laughs> I mean, when you have the president speaking like that, then, I mean, you, we only have to go on our Twitter accounts to see how many people are then speaking to us and, uh, you know, fellow journalists the same way, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's unfortunately like being in the midst of the lockdown now and spending way too much time on Twitter. And like, it's just, 
I just it's like this. It's like the you know you you're just constantly seeing like the ways that people are engaging with each other, and it's like this balance between like you know this kind of like holy uplift, and then this like just like scrum, this like fighting and like one upping each other, and um, I it's just like yeah, it's I don't know what that can't be the right solution. I don't know what the right solution is, but like it's you know it's I guess rudeness does kind of encourage like writing and like these kinds of um, absolutes are speaking in, in like these kinds of like big proclamations or like, you know, and I think that that's always kind of dangerous. Like the, there's no room for nuance. And I think more than anything right now, we probably need more nuance and, and more right. kind of like understanding than less. But um, yeah, I, I, I did. Wrestle but of course, I mean, as you're talking about Stella versus like Trump, I mean, as you say, like she's, punching up and he's punching way, way down. So I think that those two probably can't be compared in any sort of way. No, but, no. But then I, I wonder about think, like comparing her to like some of these, you know, you see these kinds of journalists who are kind of employing similar strategies or even mm-hmm. just like regular people on Twitter who are employing similar like approaches to, um, to like con- contextualize the world around them and everything that's happening right now. And I think like how useful is this? Like it doesn't right. like, I don't, I don't, I mean, for me, it just like, it's like, okay, well, there's some kind of like delight on Twitter or like it kind of, you know, weirdly provides like this entertainment, um, that's probably like super unhealthy, but like, does it actually accomplish anything? I I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so now just speaking about journalism in general, which we obviously like to discuss a lot, (laughs) but, um, now that we're all in lockdown and everyone's a medical reporter, what has you um, what has you hopeful about coronavirus reporting in general, and what has you kind of feeling despair about yeah. it, if anything, if anything on either side? Well, I'd be curious to get your thoughts about this, but like, so I was thinking about this, and I think at least for me, it has reinforced the value of news and news organizations. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is true for other people or not, but it's like, there's so much information out there. And there's so like, you know, even like I t- saying, like I'm reading Twitter and like one minute, it's just like, you know, things aren't so bad, blah, blah, blah. This is all going to be over in three months versus like, you know, I, you know, I know I'm a medical professional and there are 20, like 20 beds in my ward and they're overcrowded and, you know, everything's horrible. And it's like, you you do need like the value of news to some extent is like a, being a trusted source that can cut through and say like here is the actual reality like here's here like we're we're kind of doing some of the curating for you and so like mm-hmm. I know that there's uh, there's obviously value in like getting the chance to like pursue information yourself and but it's you know we're at a moment where it's like incredibly overwhelming and like I kind of want to be able to step back and say like I trust these people to like kind of have done the work of understanding the situation better and like then kind of providing you with the, the, the the accurate reflection of what the situation actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what makes me quite, so I think, you know, for me to reinforce like the value of the work that we do, it's like the, but then what's been kind of depressing is like, you know, nobody trusts the media anymore. And also like all these news organizations have announced layoffs in the midst of this. So it's like, (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Yeah. But do you think Um, people will, like, come back to, you know, do you think people would feel the same way about 
like also being overwhelmed and not being able to like sort through everything. And then they like, it kind of causes this almost search for like a, a source that you can trust. I would think so. So I started doing these little videos on the daily saint because I just was getting really frustrated reading this news that was, I mean, incorrect. I mean, lazy at best, incorrect Mm -hmm. is really what it was. And I just, you know, there's a reason that people are medical reporters versus like political reporters. And if you've never poured over studies to try and figure out how to put your feature together, then I don't know how suddenly you're going to be able to delineate like virus versus COVID-19 versus SARS-CoV-2 versus, you know, and I don't know that a lot of people are, I mean, I don't know. And the other thing is like you go on Twitter and then you're just bombarded and who really has the time to kind of be like, okay, that seems like pretty accurate. They've attributed all their facts. They've like, I mean, you kind of just want to get your info and try and bug out of there. So I don't know. I I also think there's just like, I understand that, you know, the impulse for like as much coverage as possible, but like, it also feels like there's a hierarchy of like what's important. I feel like a lot of what, you know, like it's like you're searching. I was trying to find information on um, like what the best way, best way to think about a response is um, given like specific context. Cause I was doing some reporting on um, some countries in sub-Saharan Africa and their response to the virus. And, um, you know, obviously they're facing like, you know, they're facing very different situations than, uh, in places in the West, like the United States, you know, just in terms of ICU coverage and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And so then it, you have to kind of like recalibrate your thinking and um, what the response is like. And it's like, the, you know, but then it's just, it's just so, so difficult to like cut through everything and find something that's, that's reputable. And, um, and I, you know, that worries me that like, there's just so much information out there and like, you can kind of pick and choose whatever you want. And it's like, I find myself just retreating to like the two or three places that I see as viable and like just kind of trying to ignore everything else at this point yeah which what are those i think stat has done like just an incredible job um and then i think the atlantic has done really well but they've also invested a lot in their science team so like i think Mm -hmm. that that's really paid off um and then you know there's specific journalists at some of the major newspapers that i'll read but like overall i kind of try to avoid the headline stories (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah there was a big thing i don't know if you saw this on twitter people were pretty curious about it. I don't want to name names or publications, but basically there was a headline that um kind oh, of the both sides of them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um and that was such a great I mean I guess now I have to explain it a little bit basically. So, <laughs> um a headline kind of pit one politician against the other in terms of what they uh, in terms of coronavirus testing. One thought there was enough and one thought there wasn't when really scientists Mm -hmm. across the board in the United States have said there is not enough. (laughs) And so why we're giving the same weight to these two politicians is kind of, you know, some scientists were quite mad about it because it's just not true. And so, yeah, I think this whole like politicizing stuff that really needs to be treated as a public health crisis is just dangerous. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked about this too, but I also just find myself like more and more um, just acknowledging my own biases or like subjectivity or just like, you know, not having less tolerance for 
kind of like the pure objectivity that we were taught in journalism school mm-hmm. because it just isn't doing anybody any good. I mean, like like you're saying, like that was a clear case where where there was there was a right side and there was a wrong side, and like you can't just present. You know, it's it's the same debate we had over climate change for years and years. It's like you can't like that just doesn't that's not like a useful frame for a story anymore, and also just doesn't mm-hmm. do a service to your readers. Like it's just unfair, right? Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't, I feel, I feel bad for people who are trying to kind of wade through the coronavirus coverage and get a good understanding of it, you know, because I think it's, it's a lot, it's like a lot on the person to be discerning and, um, just mindful of like what the hell they're reading. I mean, especially given like all the extra burdens that people have right now and just like the, you know, the weights on people's, the additional weights on people's lives. It's like, yeah, I mean, just that's. Again, for me, that's been like just the seeking out like the few sources that I trust instead of um, trying to like deal with that morass is like that's a, <laughs> otherwise I find my you know you just like there was like one day early in this where you just, I ended up on Twitter for like so many hours and just emerged feeling just horrible and it was like you know well, I don't, I don't want to live through like I can't deal with this for the rest of the however long this lasts. Yeah, no, it just I I would say like in general advice for people journalists or non-journalists is like get off twitter if you can yeah (laughs) i just it it never i never come away from twitter after spending more than like a couple minutes on it feeling good right ever (laughs) (laughs) so that's your pro tip for today daily saint (laughs) get off twitter yeah well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on my podcast. It was a real pleasure. Always yeah, a pleasure great. to chat with you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and for anyone listening, please go read Andrew's piece today. Um, you can find it in the LA Review of Books online. It's an awesome one, and I highly recommend it. So, Andrew, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the very first Daily Saint podcast episode. I am your host, Michaela Conley. Please be sure to tune in next time for more conversation about life's big questions. In the meantime, please stay safe, keep your distance, wash your hands, and be well.